older people's diets so as we get older where your brain needs more protection because it's just dealt with more more life actually we're not giving our brains the tools to kind of fight off the storms to, to be resilient to the stresses of life so we might have inbuilt deficiencies or vulnerabilities from poor diets in early life but then we're having inadequate protection later on in life as well Well, that's the voice of Kimberly Wilson, a chartered psychologist with a degree in nutrition. And our diet, she says, has a direct impact on how our brains develop, as well as the state of our mental health. I'm Liz Earle, and this is the Liz Earle Wellbeing Show, the podcast helping us all to have a better second half. And I'm constantly looking for ways for all of us to thrive in later life by investing in our health and our well-being today. And interestingly, the connection between the food that we eat and our mental state is becoming ever more apparent. And Kimberly has a philosophy of whole body mental health. That is, she's very clear that mental and physical health are inextricably linked, which is why she integrates evidence-based nutrition and lifestyle factors with psychological therapy. Well, her new book, Unprocessed, How the Food We Eat is Fueling Our Mental Health Crisis explains how what we're putting into our mouths directly affects the structure and the working of our brains. Now, she isn't claiming that nutrition is a panacea, but she is clear that it's a central factor in our rising rates of mental ill health and neurological vulnerability, one that's so often overlooked. So I am very keen to give it some real airtime today. Hey everyone, it's Jen and Jess from the beauty podcast, Fat Mascara, here to talk about Sol de Janeiro. So many of the beauty experts we interview on our show say that the key to great skin is to treat every inch of your body with the same attention you give your face. One of our favorite ways to do that is with Sol de Janeiro's Beja Flor Elastic Cream, a rich body cream that's clinically proven to boost collagen and has been shown to improve skin crepiness on the chest in just two weeks. Plus, it's scented with Sol de Janeiro's Charosta 68 fragrance. Sol de Janeiro is offering you 10% off your first order on soldejanero.com and free shipping with the code ACAS10. That's S-O-L. L-D-E-J-A-N-E-I-R-O soldajanero.com and use the code ACAS10 for 10% off. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Well, Kimberly, welcome back. You know, it's been a couple of years now since you were last on the show and a lot has happened. It has been. It has flown by. Uh, Well, it's a real pleasure to have you back here this time to really dig into how the food that we eat literally builds our brains. You know, in a in the similar way, I was thinking that a builder selects the right combination of quality materials, hopefully to construct a durable, resilient home. You know, we need a good supply of the right nutritional bricks to build ourselves a resilient brain, wouldn't you say? 
It is exactly that. And we understand that the the quality of the materials, but you know, the suitability of them as well. It needs to be the most appropriate brick for that job. And in terms of the brain, that we know that there are some some bricks, some nutrients that are absolutely irreplaceable. You know, there are other nutrients that are similar in in structure and you know molecular structure. They have a similar kind of action, but they're not they're not good enough. The brain says. The brain says, look, I don't want this this similar product. I want the, this one, this nutrient. And that means that if we're not getting those, then fundamentally, almost by definition, your your brain is going to be more vulnerable. And the problem is that many, many, almost most of us are not getting enough of these specific irreplaceable nutrients. That is really quite a statement, isn't it? And do you think part of the problem historically has been that there's just been so much about the brain that we haven't known about how it works, what it's composed of, what it needs? And, you know, are we now learning new things and we can harness that knowledge to make our brains better? I think yes and no. And I suppose starting with the no, that some of this, I mean, a lot of the research has been long established and some of the researchers have been trying to raise the alarm on this relationship, particularly between things like fatty acids and mental health conditions for for 50 years, you know, since the 1970s. And it just hasn't been listened to. Um, so in that sense, it's it's been well known. I suppose the thing that is changing is, yes, there has been much more research into the brain. The brain has become more accessible than ever. And also we're starting to move away from the, you know, the duality that we have been living under for so long. We're starting to understand that the mind is an emergent property of the brain. The brain is a physical organ situated in the body. And therefore what happens in the body will have an impact on your mind. And the more we can understand that both in terms of as a population, but also as professionals, mental health professionals, healthcare professionals and researchers, the more we can start making that information available and accessible and actionable for people. Well, you talked about fatty acids there and, and you know, this has been a particular passion of mine. My very first book, actually 30 years ago, 31 years ago now, was about vital oils mm. and it was about the role that oils and fats play in the whole body, but also specifically within the brain. What role do fats play as part of this building block analogy? How important are they? Well, certain fats, and in particular, the omega-3 fatty acids, and of those, one called docosahexaenoic acid, so DHA, is a real structural fatty acid, is a kind of cornerstone. And what we know about DHA is that its availability during pregnancy, so how much is in the maternal blood supply in the mother's diet, is what's called a rate limiting factor for baby brain development. And essentially what that means is if she doesn't have enough, the baby's brain will be smaller and less well connected. And we see that in animal studies and we also see that in human studies. So there is this relationship. You can measure the amount of uh, omega-3 in the, in the mother's blood mid-pregnancy or in baby's cord blood at birth. And then you can scan the baby's brain and the higher the omega-3, the higher the DHA, the larger the overall and regional brain volumes. And so right from the beginning, these fats are laying the foundations. And if we mm. use that analogy of the house, it's about thinking, okay, do you have a house where all the foundations are there, they're right, they're in the right position, and then you can build upon those? Or do you have foundations where there are maybe a few bricks miss missing or they're not right yeah. in the right position at the right angle? Because if that's the case, then 
it doesn't matter how beautiful an edifice you build, you could reinforce the walls and you could glaze the windows, double glaze them and have everything looking fantastic. You are always going to have a fundamental vulnerability. Yeah, structural defect. Absolutely. So where is that DHA coming from? I know a lot of, you know, mums to be or perhaps, you know, mothers who've got daughters who are approaching pregnancy and, and thinking, right, what should we be signposting here for the DHA? It's really um, the fatty fish. So the oily fish, your salmon, your mackerel, your herring, your trout. And in the region of at least two portions per week is the recommendation in terms of supplying enough to get into the mother's brain, but also to have enough going around in her blood supply for fetal development. And supplements, would not would that help for those who don't want to eat fish or can't eat fish? Um, yes, but it would need to be an algae-based preformed DHA supplement. And what I mean by that is when you look at vegan um, omega-3 supplements, they will come in largely in two forms. One will be ALA. So if you look at the back, it will say omega-3 in the form of ALA. And that will be from things like flax seeds, chia seeds, walnuts, that sort of thing. The thing about ALA is that it needs to go through several processes of conversion, enzyme reactions to get to DHA. And we just don't do that very well. Biologically, we just don't do that very well. So it's not clear that getting more ALA will actually get you to the point of having more DHA. And so really, if you're if you don't eat fish, can't eat fish or allergic to fish or something like that, then what you want is a an algae based vegan supplement, which has about 500 milligrams per day of, of, DHA. of DHA. Just as an aside, I actually saw something on social media. I think it was only yesterday, actually. It was a study that had been done by midwives and they showed two placentas mm-hmm. side by side, one from a vegan mother and the other from a, a mother who was eating you know, red meat and a sort of normal varied mm-hmm. diet. And the difference in the placentas were really quite shocking. Oh, really? In terms of size? Or... In It was size, it was viscosity, it was colour. You know, the vegan one was very pale, very sort of spongy. It was breaking up. Um, and, and the one from, from the, the meat-eating mother was just, you know, very red, you know, succulent looking and just looked much more sustaining. So you could just imagine that, that a child having been nourished from that, bearing in mind that all the nutrients were coming from the, the umbilical cord and, and being fed through the placenta. And presumably that's where a lot of the baby brain developing nutrients, that's, that's the channel into building this brand new brain. And what the mum is eating is going to be transferred that way into the baby. Yes, but but not just that, but actually, you know, the maternal diet, of course, also builds the placenta. And so we know that, for example, a fatty acid called arachidonic acid, and again, the omega-3s are involved in placental development. So there needs to be enough for the mother and her brain, enough for placental development, and then enough for baby brain development as well. And so I think one of the concerns... You know, a well-planned, well-organized, probably kind of dietitian supported or a dietitian advised vegan diet can be fine. But the risk is that not enough women who are on either plant-based or plant-exclusive diets are aware of the kind of plethora of brain-specific nutrients that are found in animal foods. So whether we're talking about omega-3s or talking about choline, which is a, a much missed nutrient, which is really important for brain health. Or iodine mm-hmm. as well, which is known to be low in plant-based diets, which is absolutely crucial for kickstarting brain development. 
you know, it's not, this information isn't getting out enough to women who are making these changes to their diets. And what about women in later life then, or anybody in later life, you know, these important nutrients, because we may decide to change our diet or restrict our diet later in life. Is that then going to have an impact? Or is it the fact that, well, we've got our brains and we were quite happy with them and they're just going to stay very static? It doesn't really matter what we feed them with later on. No, so the brain is never static. The, the, the brain is what we call plastic. It's always moving. It's always changing in response to experience. And actually, we know that later life and, and menopause and postmenopausal period is really important. It's a crucial risk time for women's brains. And there are some nutrients in particular, again, that have been shown to be protective. So again, the omega-3s, which shouldn't be a surprise, we know they form about 30% of your brain cell membrane. So you're always gonna need a consistent supply of them in order to keep your brain well supplied. Um, in fact, there was a, a study, I think only published last week, that showed that a high dietary intake of magnesium, and so magnesium is found in leafy green vegetables, in beans like black beans and pinto beans, in nuts like almonds, mm. cashews, Brazil nuts, that magnesium is associated with a retention in brain volume. So your brain Ooh. starts to shrink as you get older. Wow. And that brain shrinkage is associated with, you know, impairments in your cognition, being a bit more forgetful, mm. not being quite as sharp as you used to be. And what they found is that people who consumed the higher levels of, of dietary magnesium held on to more of that brain volume, really? held on to more of that hippocampal volume, absolutely. And it was the equivalent of about a year's brain aging. But specific to older women, while there were benefits across the board, the most benefits were postmenopausal women. And that's really important yeah. because we know that women have twice the risk of Alzheimer's disease. Mm -hmm. And we know that the menopause is a, this crucial risk time. So that is information that absolutely needs to be in the hands of of women. It, I mean, that's that's what we need to have, you know, splashed across Daily Mail headlines, exactly. isn't it? Basically, take your magnesium. Interestingly, I've been supplementing with magnesium actually since I started to have a, you know, less sleep, I suppose, during the beginning of pandemic and lockdowns and all of that terrible impact on mental health, which we've talked about before. I was taking magnesium and I find magnesium glycinate or biglycinate that I take in the evening really helps with my sleep. And I've been taking that now regularly for the last couple of years. So how fascinating that I'm actually building my brain at the same time. I didn't know that. That's a great side That's effect. Brilliant. Yes, absolutely. And the, the thing about our, our modern diets is that they're, they're particularly low in magnesium. When you process a whole grain, for, exa for example, you lose about 80% of the magnesium. And when you think about all the foods that I listed, they are whole foods, they are minimally processed whole foods. And so actually what we're eating, what most people are eating consistently, habitually, are diets that are low in these nutrients that we know to be beneficial for brain health. Well, of course, your book, your brilliant book, I should preface with that word, Unprocessed, is all about that. And is it really true, would you say, that so much of this depletion in minerals and vitamins in our diet and nutrients generally is coming from food processing? I think, it, I think it's coming from the proportion of our diets that are made up of these foods. At the moment, in the UK, 55% 
of the average adult's diet, the calories from the average adult's diet is coming from ultra processed foods. Ultra processed um, foods over half. Over half. In children, it's 68%. <gasps> Nearly 70% yeah. out of a packet. And for 20% of the UK children, it's 78%. So these are extraordinarily high proportions of yes. foods that we know to be by definition low in nutrients that are important for brain health. We know the research tells us very, very clearly that the higher your intake of UPS, ultra processed foods, the lower your intakes of vitamins A, important for brain health, vitamins B, B3, 6 and 12, all important for mood, anxiety, neurodegeneration. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. C, D, E, magnesium, phosphorus, omega-3 fatty acids, all of these nutrients, the higher your intake of UPF, the lower your intake of these. And so if we're thinking about children's diets, children whose brains are still rapidly developing, but then also older people's diets, so as we get older, where your brain needs more protection because it's just dealt with more more life more stuff yeah. <laughs> then actually we're not we're not giving our brains the tools to kind of fight off the storms to, to be resilient to the stresses of life so we might have inbuilt deficiencies or vulnerabilities from poor diets in early life but then we're having inadequate protection later on in life as well and is that then linking into increasing rates of dementia cognitive decline alzheimer's that really seems to be what we're seeing. So we have at the moment, and even in, in kind of COVID era, the leading cause of death in the UK is dementia. Wow, we and just don't think of that, do we? You, you we don't, don't think, think that dementia is a killer. You think that it's debilitating, but is it our biggest killer? Overtaking heart disease, type two diabetes. Cancer. Because most people will think, oh, it's probably cancer, it's, yeah. it's heart disease. Yeah. And, um, and, and another question I often get, someone said, yes, but isn't it that people die with dementia rather than of it? And actually, no, that's the case for Parkinson's. You die with it rather than of it. Mm -hmm. But for dementia, for something like Alzheimer's disease, it impairs your motor function so much that things like, you know, swallowing become a problem or you're more likely to have, you know, then develop a problem with your breathing and, and, and that kind of thing, your autonomic responses. So, yes, even in COVID times, dementia is our leading cause of death. And again, women have twice the risk. Yes. And it's not simply that we're an older population because somewhere like Greece, which has an even older general population than we do, dementia is the eighth leading cause of death. Really? There. Way down yes, the charts. Way down. So there is something about the way that we are living here in the UK mm. that is that is harming our brains. And certainly the nutritional profile plays a big role in that. For So the magnesium that I've already mentioned, our low, chronically low intake of omega-3 fatty acids is a problem. Our low intake of leafy green vegetables is a problem. Also our low intakes of choline, which I mentioned earlier on, we know that the more choline, you know, getting adequate choline reduces the burden of amyloid plaques. So those are the hallmarks of Alzheimer's disease. People who are getting adequate choline have less of this disease burden in their brains. And people who adhere to a more Mediterranean style diet mm -hmm. have brains that have less amyloid plaques, which are a hallmark of Alzheimer's. They have fewer of these tangles of protein that kind of break down the brain cells. So the, the, the healthier your diet, the less burden your brain has and the less likely you are to end up dying of these illnesses. Well, before we started recording this, I had my brunch, which I normally do <laughs> mid-morning, 
and every morning pretty much I have two boiled eggs lovely sometimes scrambled sometimes poached but always two organic local eggs from from my local farmer um from the farm gate so I'm very fortunate to be able to get them but you know if I'm in town I'll, I'll go and buy decent eggs and one of the reasons that I always eat eggs every day is for their choline mm-hmm. because I looked up and saw what a good source they were of choline yes and and again I mean I don't I don't want to give the impression that, you know, it's it's terrible to be vegan, but we know that choline is one of the nutrients that is chronically low on a vegan diet. Mm. For example, when you supplement women during pregnancy with choline, 11 years later, their children have better attention. Like, wow. This is how That's important staggering. this nutrient is for yeah. the structure of the brain, the formation of neurotransmitters like acetylcholine, the, the way that your genes work. So choline controls gene expression. But I mean, across the board, we're not quite getting enough. If you're not eating liver, which is actually the highest mm. food source of fallen, and then eggs, egg yolks in particular, and then it's again, it's animal foods, which are the highest food sources of, of choline. The best plant source is going to be something like wheat germ, and not many people, even if they are vegan or vegetarian, are eating. No, and also you, you you say best source, but that's per hundred grams. You've got you've got to eat an awful lot of wheat germ to eat because it's you've very to, light. Exactly. It's like it's like saying you know <laughs> parsley is rich, the richest source of vitamin C. But yeah, I mean, have you ever tried to eat hundred grams of parsley? I mean, you'd be there all day, wouldn't you? <laughs> Exactly, exactly. No, you're absolutely right. So in terms of density, you're, you, you're going to have to work pretty yeah, hard. Yeah. And again, you'll have to work pretty hard eating a whole food diet because, uh, again, it's, it's, it's not clear that you're going to be getting enough from a diet that is, that is more processed. Now, we'll come on and talk about mental health and, and lots of other brain conditions in just a moment. But I just want to cover off a little bit here, a little bit of a sideline, if you like, on sugar. You, you know, you're obviously a fantastic baker. You were a finalist on the Great <laughs> British Bake Off. And I, I stalk you on Instagram and I love the recipes and watching the things that you make. So what does your heart and your penchant for cake say <laughs> to your scientific brain about sugar? Yes. So this is where, you know, I have to get both parts of myself around the table um, <laughs> to negotiate how we go forward. Mm-hmm. Um, because what is true, and, and I think sometimes the conversation around sugar can be a bit controversial in as far as um, actually your brain does have an obligatory need for glucose. This that much is true. You cannot substitute glucose in terms of the energy source for your brain. Can't Even, you substitute it with ketones? No, you can't. And, and the reason is that actually when we're thinking about the metabolism of glucose versus ketone versus fats is the amount of oxygen produced or required in the metabolism or the conversion of those substrates into ATP. And essentially with glucose, you need the least amount of oxygen. And that's important because the more oxygen you need, the more oxygen starved the brain cell would become and or the more reactive oxygen species you will produce, which are oxidants, which you don't want banging around Mm. in your brain. Mm -hmm. So even if you are on a ketogenic diet, if you're on a low carb diet, if you're not getting sufficient protein, which your body breaks down in order to turn into glucose, in order to feed your brain, Mm -hmm. your body will start breaking down your own proteins in order to produce glucose to feed your brain. So there is an obligatory kind of, impossible to substitute need for glucose so that much is true (laughs) but the what but your brain has as i just your body has ways of getting that which is either through this kind of process of gluconeogenesis or 
for the most for most people through breaking down carbohydrates and starches and so in our evolutionary history what would happen is that we would eat some sort of starchy product whether it was a potato like product or a type of corn or a bean or a lentil or you know any of these kind of more starchy foods and you have enzymes you have amylases that will break it down into glucose to feed your brain no problem as long as you're getting enough omega-3s and enough glucose your brain is pretty happy right um the issue with sugar is when it impairs our glycemic control so when you have high blood sugar pre-diabetes or type 2 diabetes we know that all of these conditions and preconditions are risk factors for dementia independently of anything else if you have poor glycemic control you have an increased risk of dementia and there are a few reasons for that so we know that high blood sugar uh, disturbs the action of the cells that line your blood vessels it kind of damages them it impairs their action and essentially your brain is so hungry it needs a constant supply of oxygen and nutrients and um, and sugar you know glucose and it gets that from a healthy bloodstream which is supplied from healthy blood vessels so if mm. your blood vessels aren't working well if they start to get stiff if they start to break down if they start to scar over and have plaques then essentially your brain cells start to starve similarly if you have high blood glucose and you become insulin resistant you also then become resistant to being able to take up the glucose into the brain where you know the brain cells that need it so again the brain cells are starved uh, but there's there i mean there are so many parts of it we know then that if you're resistant to insulin then you also become resistant to insulin like growth factors and essentially they are protective factors for your brain cells um so you lose that protection as well so there are all of these reasons why high blood glucose and in particular sugar from sugar sweetened beverages so liquid sugars seem to be associated with not just increased risk of dementia but also just poorer cognition people tend to have you know the children of mothers who have gestational diabetes or high blood glucose tend to have poorer cognition tend to have poorer language skills they tend to have lower iqs through childhood and and then through adulthood people with poorer glycemic control put poorer blood glucose control tend to have poorer cognitive function so all the way along the lifespan managing modulating keeping your blood sugar nice and steady is really important okay so bottom line then when and how often do we eat the cake <laughs> <laughs> so the studies that have looked at kind of a clinical diet that is associated with better brain health so something like the mind diet or a modified mediterranean style diet they generally recommend three times or fewer per week eating something that's sweetened which isn't too bad no, i think three three pieces of it, cake like, a week i can i can do right? that it's, mm-hmm. it's not too bad every other day yeah it's, it's okay but it's yeah it's really thinking about um and actually and i was reading a paper this morning um one or fewer sweetened beverages a week yeah so i think just let's can... just ditch the the, the <laughs> sweet drinks because really? they're just a waste of time and money you know the, the the fizzy drinks and even the fruit juices which i used to be a fan of you know you're just drinking liquid glucose and, and immediately spiking your insulin so we don't need to do that there are better sources for 
vitamins, for example, than, than drinking fruit juice. Yeah, there's kind of, you know, whilst sugar in the matrix of food, your body seems to manage quite well. There's really very little good news about kind of sugar sweetened beverages, unfortunately. Okay, well, stay tuned because we're going to come back and talk about mental health and food and the impact on the brain. Hey everyone, it's Jen and Jess from the beauty podcast, Fat Mascara, here to talk about Sol de Janeiro. So many of the beauty experts we interview on our show say that the key to great skin is to treat every inch of your body with the same attention you give your face. One of our favorite ways to do that is with Sol de Janeiro's Beige Flor Elastic Cream, a rich body cream that's clinically proven to boost collagen and has been shown to improve skin crepiness on the chest in just two weeks. Plus, it's scented with Sol de Janeiro's Charosta 68 fragrance. Sol de Janeiro is offering you 10% off your first order on soldejanero.com and free shipping with the code ACAS10. That's S-O L-D-E-J-A-N-E-I-R-O soldejanero.com and use the code ACAS10 for 10% off. Hi, I'm Kara Berry, host of Everyone's Business But Mine, and I am an all-inclusive addict. Enter Club Med, the best all-inclusive for you and your family. With resorts worldwide from their family flagship resort, Club Med Punta Cana, to their only mountain resort in Canada, Club Med Quebec, they have everything you need to relax with their 20 plus sports activities, wellness programs. You can dine on delicious cuisine and make memories with your family. So book your next getaway with Club Med. Visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue checkmark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. So, Kimberly, let's just talk a little bit here about your research in particular, which is fascinating to read in the book, about poor nutrition in childhood influencing brain development in such a way that it actually increases the likelihood of violence and aggression. So our external behaviour and, you know, when you think about our overcrowded prisons, when you think about the cost to society, let alone the human cost, It is quite staggering, isn't it, that these are processes that are set in place almost pre-birth. It's almost as if they're predetermined. Yes, and this is, I think this is really important for us to understand as a society, um, both in how it relates to children and childhood exclusion, but also, of course, then how it relates to crime, violence, how we address um, criminality, the prison system. Because we have kind of converging evidence now that 
Poor nutrition, malnutrition in childhood is associated with two types of behaviour that we consider to be problematic in children. And those are internalising and externalising behaviours. Children who suffer from inadequate nutrition in childhood, whether that's food insecurity, whether that is you know, abject hunger or whether that is nutritional deficiencies, are more likely to either internalise and that means kind of turning inwards. These children become withdrawn, quiet, they, they pull away from social engagement, they might be more inclined to rumination or self-harm. So these are children who are very, very quiet and are kind of turning inwards. And this internalising behaviours in childhood are associated with increased risk of psychological um, conditions and psychological ill health in, in later life, but also externalising behaviours. Now, and externalising behaviours are, you know, it's still children who are in distress, but they, they turn their behaviours outwards. So these are children who kick, who bite, who might get into fights, who might get into kind of graffiti and kind of public damage and disorder. And this kind of behaviour is associated with increased risk of criminality, conviction and imprisonment. So we know that poor nutrition, what seems to happen is that it impairs the brain to such an extent that it impairs their ability to kind of think and plan behaviour because we know that the front part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, is the part of the brain that we consider to be the home of our higher human functions, our impulse control, our reason, our ability to monitor other people's emotions, our ability to empathise, all sit there. And actually that has the highest energy requirement of any region of the brain and the highest nutrient requirement of any region of the brain. Really? So what seems to happen is that this nutritional deficiency or inadequacy in childhood impairs cognition in such a way as to impair the child's ability to monitor their behaviour. And this can be the thing that kind of sets children up onto a trajectory mm. of being more likely to be, you know, labelled naughty or disruptive, yeah. um, more likely to be kicked out of school. And we know that children who are kicked out of school are much more likely to be at risk of getting into troubles, getting into gangs, getting into mm. the kinds of activities that are might be most likely to get them arrested. It's really staggering when you think about the cost. I mean, let, let's leave aside the human suffering, which of course is enormous, both for the child and the young person, but also for the families and, and the communities around. But if you look at a cost from a medical care point of view, the, the resources of the NHS massively overstretched in terms of mental health, dealing with all the kind of psychotic behaviours that might follow as that child then grows and develops um, or becomes psychopathic and you know, it kind of manifests in all sorts of other ways. Or the cost in terms of policing and the judiciary and prison service and all of that, you know, is colossal. I mean, running into billions when you add that, billions. Why, oh why, are we not prioritising children's nutrition? Because if there's this clear link that says, don't give them the junk, let's just keep them off the crap. You know, can we please give children some baseline of sustainable nutrition, these building blocks, and the young mums during pregnancy, or older mums during pregnancy, so that we ward off this behaviour? I mean, it must be, it's incredibly short-sighted, surely. It it's it's short-sighted to the to the point of kind of blindness and self-harm kind of you know yeah. it's kind of you're you're shooting yourself in the foot by not addressing this mm. 
as early as possible in the trajectory, we know that you get the biggest return on your investment in terms of savings to the NHS, as you say, savings to the MOJ, saving increases in GDP, you know, because people who have better nutrition in childhood tend to have higher IQs, IQ tracks with lifetime earnings, and the more you earn, the more tax you pay, right? So all of this can be influenced earlier, you know, there's higher ROI earlier in the trajectory. I mean... (laughs) But then if we look at ourselves, for example, and we look at our own brains and those around us, and particularly as, as we get older, I know that I casually use the word hanger for example, I'll tell myself, oh, I'm so hungry. I haven't eaten and I'm starting to get really irritable as a result of that. Presumably that is literally the case. Is that an, an example of how feeding mm. our brain has an absolute knock-on effect on our mental and our physical state? Yes, and hunger is a real thing. You know, we talk about it jokingly, but it it's a real thing. And it's a real thing for a few reasons. So one is that, you know, when you get hungry and your blood sugar drops, your cortisol level rises. And we think about cortisol as a stress hormone, but actually it's, it's and it is, but its primary job is it's a glucocorticoid. And what that means is that it, it balances blood sugar. It, what it does is to, when you're stressed as part of your stress response, or when you're hungry, is that cortisol releases glucose into your bloodstream. Because if you're stressed, you need to think about how you're going to escape whatever the problem is or deal with the challenge. And also, if you're hungry, you need more energy to fuel your constantly hungry brain. But along with that increased glucose comes the agitation, you know, that feeling of of stress or or restlessness or listlessness that comes with being being hungry or comes with the cortisol. Um, So there's that. There's a a feature of psychology that we call valence, which is an internal state of pleasantness or unpleasantness, which informs our emotional states. So it's the way that, you know, life can be going fine, but if you've got a stone in your shoe or your clothes are uncomfortably tight, you know, you're wearing that bra that pokes in, you know, in the wrong place, you can feel a bit grumpy. It's hard to feel in a good mood when there is some sort of physiological distress occurring. And so hunger, malnutrition, insufficient uh, nutrients can influence a state of internal unpleasantness, which leads to poor mood and irritability. And then the finally is that we know that nutritional deficiencies, particularly things like the B vitamins, that their signs of deficiency show up neurologically first and they show up as things like anxiety, irritability, depression. Is that so? Mm. Interesting. Is that all B vitamins or, or specific ones like B6 or, or B12? Pretty much all of them. They all play, they're, they're all so important because they, they work together. They kind of help each other out. They're a little family, but pretty much all of them play this central neurological role. And certainly B3, 6 and 12 have this, and thymine, have this clear link, this um, relationship with mood states. So why is it then that we don't tend to crave them? So, you know, when we're stressed and feeling anxious, and I'm talking for myself here, you know, we tend to reach for for comfort eating, like sweet foods, the biscuits, the chocolate bar, whatever. Is there a relationship then between stress hormones and nutrition in that respect that makes us automatically want to go for the sugary carbs, which is probably the last thing that we actually need? Mm. So there absolutely is a relationship between stress and sugar. So like I said, with with cortisol, that it has this relationship between uh, your, your stress response 
and the ability to access glucose. Um, what we also know is that having sugar can blunt your stress response. So people who are fed a sugary food first and then maybe ex exposed to a, a frightening TV program or something stressful, they have a blunted stress response. So actually for a lot of people, sugar does make them feel better, right? And, and sugar can help to resolve the stress response in the acute phase, right? So there is something to this, this drive to have carbohydrates or sugars when we're feeling stressed. The issue is over the long term because actually what that does, if it's the only tool that you have to draw on, is A, limit your ability to actually deal with the problem at hand, but also then it can make cause problems in terms of your glycemic control. So essentially when you're stressed, your body is only concerned with getting over the, the immediate stress, you know, and, and what it needs then is glucose to fuel your muscles and for your brain to be able to think straight. And then what your body hopes will happen is that the stress will end and you can go back to baseline, you can go back to homeostasis, you can go back to eating your generally nutritious diet. But the problem is that many of us are chronically stressed. Yeah, so we're, we're stressed all the time. In yeah. this state of, of right. kind of uh, recovery from stress through um, sugary food, comfort eating. So I guess what we need to do is address the stress so that we can then you know not respond to those those triggers then what about alcohol because that's also another trigger isn't it during stress and you know as it stands today what's the research saying about the relationship between alcohol consumption and cognitive decline and, and brain activity the, well I, I was gonna say it's very clear i think it's increasingly clear so uh, i guess a lot of the research say prior to year 2000, 2010 maybe, there was lots of information that was saying, look, a small amount of alcohol, moderate alcohol consumption is perhaps neuroprotective, particularly if it's a kind of local, low alcohol red wine in the context of a Mediterranean style diet. However, researchers are now coming around to the idea that actually maybe a lot of that was confounded by the Mediterranean diet itself. Right. And that actually okay. we're not sure that there is, in terms of your brain health, a safe level of alcohol consumption. What really? None at all? None at all. And um, what we're very clear on is that alcohol is a neurotoxin. So ethanol is a neurotoxin. There's no question about that whatsoever. The Where it becomes... I guess a bit more complicated is, is there any benefit to the polyphenols, the kind of brightly colored compounds in something like red wine? And at what level is, you know, the kind of cost benefit analysis of those two things? So what we know, for example, is that at least 10% of dementias are alcohol driven, they're alcohol related brain damage. Really? Um, and perhaps more because people underreport how much alcohol they are drinking. Yeah, that's true. Um, so a good proportion of what we're seeing in terms of poor cognition and cognitive decline is is linked to alcohol consumption. Um, the latest trend, actually, interestingly, is that younger people aren't drinking as much alcohol, but older mm. women are drinking more. Older women oh who are... <laughs> who were less likely they were actually in the past they were more likely to be kind of teetotal or to say that they didn't drink yeah they're now more likely to say actually i i do drink consistently or regularly during the week so i'm not sure what's driving that trend whether that's about you know increased 
uh, disposable income or whether that's about increased stress or I'm not sure what that's about but um, that is the group that is starting to drink more to shift the trend drink more I would say it's probably the latter I'd say it's probably sadly not the increased disposable income but the increase in stress actually I stopped drinking in September of 2022 when I was doing a, a fast for work I was researching it and I just felt so much better that I hadn't actually picked it up again. And mm. I'm not saying I'm never going to drink again. Um, I think, you know, I, I enjoy wine. I've got, you know, some lovely bottles sitting there waiting for, <laughs> for when I do decide to uncork something. But I'm I'm just not sure, actually. And like you, you know, I've, I've read about the protective benefits of certain types of red wine, for example, and the resveratrol that you find and the polyphenols. But then I'm thinking, well, actually, I can get my polyphenols from my olive oil and from my, you know, my, my fruits and veg. <laughs> yeah, some grapes without being fermented. Now, talking about <laughs> fermentation, I can't let you go without talking about gut health, obviously, one of my favorite topics. And I know that there is, we talked about this before, the gut-brain axis where is the, the, the gut-brain connection here? And particularly in terms of processed foods, presumably, you know, processed foods by definition are not going to have the, the live microbial activity that you'd get from, from something that's raw. Yes, but not just the live microbes, but also the fibre. So um, fibre, I really, I mean... Omega-3s is something that I bang on about a lot, but also I really want to kind of wave the flag and um, bang the drum for fibre. So many, many more people are thinking about the gut-brain axis and they are thinking about it often, I think, in terms of probiotics. You know, should I be having more kimchi and sauerkraut and those things? Um, yes, that's fine. But really what you need to be thinking about is your fibre intake. Because A, there's kind of no point in throwing all of these microbes in there if they've got nothing to eat <laughs> and your microbes these bacteria eat fiber fiber is their main fuel source but b if you've not got very good the the, the cells that line your gut have tight junctions they're called tight junctions if those cells don't have very good integrity if they're not kind of being held well together which you again get from fiber just throwing down more microbes in there isn't going to do you any good so first of all, fiber, but then the other thing about the way that fiber protects your brain is that when the microbes, the bacteria in your gut break down and ferment fiber, they produce a byproduct. And that byproduct are called, those byproducts are called short chain fatty acids. And what short chain fatty acids do is they cross over into the bloodstream, they head up, they get to your brain, and they protect the cells that make up your blood-brain barrier, which again is this protective layer of cells that prevent toxic compounds, broken down bits of food, bacteria, viruses from crossing from the bloodstream into the brain. And we know that damage, loss of integrity in the blood-brain barrier is a driver of Alzheimer's disease. And so there is a question as to whether our chronically low intakes of fibre and there is not a single age group in the UK that gets enough fibre, whether that is, again, contributing to our quite high rates of neurodegenerative disease in the UK. That's a really fascinating connection and one that is definitely something that we're going to have to come back and explore again. 
Finally, Kimberly, you say in your book that you're not afraid of many things, but dementia is one of them and that your fear is almost one of the reasons that you chose to study brain health in the first place. So how then does the food that we eat affect our chances of getting dementia and and what are the simple takeaway messages, not takeaway foods probably, but takeaway messages here that you can share with us that we can eat on a daily basis that will increase our chances of having better brain protection against dementia? So the evidence is pretty clear. So people who have the highest adherence to a minimally processed Mediterranean style diet have a 23% lower risk of developing dementia compared to those with the least adherence. People who have the highest blood levels of uh, DHA, of omega-3 fatty acids, have a 49% reduced risk of developing dementia. So what we know from the evidence is having sufficient omega-3 fatty acids in your diet, so that's two portions of oily fish per week, or a supplement um, that meets those levels, getting those leafy green vegetables, which will provide that magnesium and other important phytochemicals, plant chemicals that support and protect your brain, those brightly coloured berries and other fruits and vegetables to supply the polyphenols that protect your uh, blood vessels and fibre, so your whole grains. Oh, and beans. Everyone needs to be eating more beans. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Those are the things. So oily fish, leafy greens, whole grains, beans, and brightly coloured fruits and vegetables. Those should be the cornerstones of your diet. And the evidence tells us that that, even when you have genetic risk factors for Alzheimer's disease, eating a diet that adheres to those kind of principles reduces your risk of developing dementia and Alzheimer's disease. Brilliant. I am literally, I have my pen and my notepad. I have just been (laughs) writing my shopping list (laughs) to remind myself. I can't thank you enough, Kimberly, for for being here. You are an absolute joy. One of my favourite guests. So much good information. Your book, Unprocessed, is absolutely brilliant. I suggest that everybody goes out and buys a copy and takes a, a deep dive into it. And hopefully with your research and your tenacity, we can bring about some societal change as well for the next generation so i hope so thank you well if this chat has nudged you in the direction of wanting to think more about altering your diet of course there are so many delicious recipes over on lizardwellbeing.com we are focusing as always on low sugar so nutritious and tasty seasonal as well and with a lot of local ingredients in fact talking about ingredients i do literally have my shopping list here in front of me and i've written on it blueberries for the berries, pinto beans, which I don't normally cook with, so I'm going to go and give those a try, mackerel, which I love, Cornish line caught mackerel, brilliant as an oily fish, and of course, lots of green cabbage. Well, lizardwellbeing.com is also the place to go if you want to sign up for our free weekly newsletter, which is always filled with plenty more tips for living well, as well as recipes for the weekend, and of course, links to other podcasts too. Well, I'd love to know what you enjoyed learning in this episode with Kimberly. Do let me know on social media. You can find me at Lizelle Me 
And the team and I are at Lizard Wellbeing. And if you prefer to listen to episodes ad-free from now on, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts for a very small monthly fee. And with that, you even get early access to the episodes too. Well, as ever, I'll be back with you next week. So until then, go well. Bye-bye. The Lizelle Wellbeing Show is presented by me, Lizelle, and is produced by Anushka Tate for Fresh Air Production, with additional production support from Ellie Smith. Hey everyone, it's Jen and Jess from the beauty podcast Fat Mascara, here to talk about Sol de Janeiro. So many of the beauty experts we interview on our show say that the key to great skin is to treat every inch of your body with the same attention you give your face. One of our favorite ways to do that is with Sol de Janeiro's Beige Flor Elastic Cream, a rich body cream that's clinically proven to boost collagen and has been shown to improve skin crepiness on the chest in just two weeks. Plus, it's scented with Sol de Janeiro's Charosa 68 fragrance. Sol de Janeiro is offering you 10% off your first order on soldejanero.com and free shipping with the code ACAST10. That's S-O L-D-E-J-A-N-E-I-R-O soldajanero.com and use the code ACAST10 for 10% off. Hi, my name is Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic and I'm excited to talk to you about Club Med. Club Med operates beach and mountain resorts and is the best all-inclusive getaway for families. They have Club Med Punta Cana, their flagship family resort, and many other options in Mexico, the Caribbean, and around the world. Club Med are the pioneers of the all-inclusive concept, which is the best way to vacation. Great for families, groups, or even solo travelers looking for land and water sports, delicious food, Food and a place to make unforgettable memories. Visit clubmed.us, call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.